Welcome to Prima's podcast. My name is Shonda Ragland. I manage the education and training programs at the Public Risk Management Association. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. In honor of this extremely important month, Angelique Dell will discuss preventing sexual abuse in organizations. Ms. Dell is the account manager of schools at Presidium. Angelique Dell specializes in the study and the prevention of sexual abuse in schools. Ms. Dell has assessed, analyzed, and consulted on hundreds of sexual abuse cases within a wide range of organizations, including schools, churches, camps, recreation facilities, and social service organizations. She has trained thousands on abuse prevention and the management of inappropriate peer-to-peer interactions. Ms. Dell's specialized knowledge includes training services, policy development, hiring practices, supervision protocols of staff and youth, and abuse responding procedures. The majority of Ms. Dell's work at Presidium involves assisting school leaders in developing comprehensive abuse risk management plans. Before joining Presidium, Ms. Dell obtained a law degree from Southern Methodist University Dedman School of Law and graduated with honors from the University of Texas. She is licensed to practice law in the state of Texas. Ms. Dell has served as a guardian ad litem for foster children and has assisted district attorneys at the Dallas County District Attorney's Office in developing trial strategies, picking juries, and preparing for trials involving sexual misconduct. We will also be joined by Danica Williams, a member of Prima's education and training team. Danica will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the show. Angelique, with sexual abuse cases hitting the media every day, it seems, have you seen a change in the way organizations manage this risk? Yes, I have, but the change hasn't been quite as radical as you may think. Um, I've seen more organizations and schools specifically really start thinking about this risk. Um, You know, they're thinking, what do we do? What should we be doing? But at the same time, I'm still shocked at the number of organizations that aren't doing anything other than criminal background checks, which, as many of us know, that's simply not, not enough because only about 4 to 5% of offenders actually have a criminal record because they don't get caught. Um, and so, you know, we are seeing more and more organizations recognize they need to be doing something, and they're asking, what, what should we be doing? But I don't think we have enough of them actually doing anything about it, which is what's scary. Now, what is the biggest misconception about sexual abuse in schools or in other programs? I think the biggest misconception is that we, we can't prevent it from happening. And that's just not the case. We can prevent it from happening. And at Presidium, we've looked at thousands of cases, and we've seen the same thing show up over and over again. And and that's how we have developed our paradigm, our safety equation, to really help organizations learn, you know, what we can learn from these old cases of abuse to implement change in our organization to prevent it from happening. Because so many organizations treat sexual abuse incidents like a natural disaster. It shows up out of nowhere, and we just think about the aftermath. 
And so often you'll see organizations talking about what are signs of abuse and they focus on mandated reporting, but really we should be thinking about what can we put in place to prevent an incident from occurring within our organization and specifically prevent a child from being sexually abused. So how do offenders still manage to slip through the cracks and to get jobs around the children? If the screening process of an organization relies mostly on background checks, that's how they're going to get through. Because as I said earlier, you know, most offenders don't have a criminal record. They don't get caught. Um, Or if an organization relies on a bad screening process or, you know, a bad background check, which I've seen many organizations just use a state background check instead of looking um, at a national type of background check or a multi-state check, um, that's another way that you're going to end up letting an offender slip through the cracks because we, we've worked with an organization, um, actually a school, and all they did was run a statewide background check. And what happened is they hired someone who was um, found guilty of an assault crime, but actually he had pled down a sexual assault crime to just an assault crime. So he wasn't put on a national sex offender registry list. And in that state, he was just convicted of an assault crime. Well, he moved to Arizona, applied for a, a job in a school there, And he got hired because all they did was check their Arizona records, even though they knew that this individual had just moved to Arizona. Um, And so that's another way that you see these offenders slip through the cracks. And so really, organizations should look at their screening process and realize that background checks are just one component of a thorough screening process. They need to think about applications, what should they be asking of their applicants on applications, The interview process, they need to be making sure that they're asking behavioral-based questions to really understand how this applicant is going to handle or they have handled situations in the past. And they also need to be calling references, both personal and professional references. Personal references actually provide a wealth of information because they aren't restricted to what many professional references are restricted to providing, which may be just dates of employment and whether or not they'd rehire. Um, Personal references can really give you a lot of good information about an applicant. And so an organization can help prevent someone from slipping through the cracks by really looking at their screening process and figuring out, you know, what are we doing And how can we change this to make it more effective and a a better screening tool for our organization? Now, you may have answered this in this last question, but are there any other measures that these organizations may take to limit this from happening, to limit offenders from slipping through the cracks? Well, yes. And so, you know, I think the screening process is really just one piece of the puzzle. And at Presidium, you know, our paradigm that we've come up with, our proprietary model for abuse prevention is our safety equation. And screening and selection is just one piece of that model. We have seven other operations that we look at. And so really organizations can also look at these other elements and realize, okay, policies. What policies do we have in place to manage this risk? And, you know, specifically thinking about policies, really asking 
do we define what's appropriate and inappropriate for our staff and our volunteers in their interactions with, with youth? And so physical affection, outside contact, you know, what kind of contact can they have with youth outside of our programs? How about verbal conversations? And also, most importantly, electronic communication. That's where we're seeing offenders operate. That's where they're getting caught is because they are doing things online or via text message, and that's how we're, we're seeing this happening. And so really organizations need to look at, you know, what are they currently have in place in all of these other areas, you know, policies, training, monitoring and supervision, responding. And so if someone does slip through the cracks, it's really, well, if they're here, what can we do to prevent them from accessing our kids? And so, you know, what can we do to prevent them from having privacy or from operating in that way in our programs? And how can we respond in a way to make sure that they don't stay here? We hope you found the information you've heard so far useful. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2016 annual conference, June 5th through 8th in Atlanta, Georgia. Here are some words from Dorothy Jerdrum regarding why she values Prima's annual conference. I love the interactions that people have during the presentation and after the presentation. So I would say once a year, the Prima annual conference is the place to be. To learn more about the annual conference, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Angelique and Danica. What is the most common type of abuse incident that you've seen in youth-serving programs? I think it's sometimes shocking to organizations to hear that it's not the adult-to-child abuse incident that we see most often. Instead, it's peer-to-peer abuse. And so it's two youth sexually acting out together, whether it's consensual or non-consensual. And, you know, every state has different definitions for what is consent and what's not consent. But within a youth-serving program, a school, a, an after-school program, a youth sports activity, you know, it, consent doesn't matter. We don't want our kids engaging in sexual behavior within our programs. And so what we're seeing most often, though, is that you have two kids, and they're, you know, I would say the, the most common age range is, you know, 7 to 13, um, and they go off and they you know, are found maybe in a bathroom or locker room together sexually acting out. Um, and, and that's what we see most often is the peer-to-peer abuse. And, you know, sometimes they, that gets couched with bullying or maybe a hazing incident, but that's what we see most often is two youth or even more than two youth um, sexually acting out within our youth-serving programs. And so when we think about that safety equation again, it's focusing on the monitoring and supervision element. How are we supervising the youth in our programs to prevent them from having that privacy in a bathroom? So how do we oversee our bathroom protocols? You know, are, are we ensuring that kids are going to the bathroom one at a time or that someone's actively monitoring that area to ensure that two kids aren't alone in a bathroom? together. Now, in your experience, are there signs or behaviors that may indicate that an adult is a potential risk to a minor? Yes. And so out of the thousands of incidents of abuse that we've seen, we've identified common behaviors 
amongst those, those thousands of cases. And it's not that there are thousands of behaviors. They are a handful of the same things over and over. And so, you know, I, the, the ones that come to mind are that you have someone who's breaking your rules, whether they're written rules or just, hey, here's how we engage with our youth in our programs. Um, they are going to push the limits. And until they're told not to, right? And so they're, they're going to push the limits on physical affection. They're going to wrestle. They're going to tickle. They're going to be, you know, very physical. Um, and, you know, an organization that doesn't have policies on how do we interact physically with our students or our youth in our programs, they're not going to be able to respond as easily. And your staff aren't going to be able to step forward and, tell a supervisor, hey, I, I saw this staff member engaging in this type of physical affection, because if you don't have a policy, it's difficult to say they're creeping me out. But if you have a policy that says we don't wrestle, we don't tickle, then it's a lot easier to step forward and say, hey, I saw them violating this policy. Um, also, we'll see that these individuals are the ones offering to stay late, to drive kids home. Um, they, they make an effort to be alone with youth. And so that's another behavior that we'll see over and over because they're going to go above and beyond, and that's why they often are seen as an amazing volunteer or a wonderful staff member because they're doing everything they can to get more access and potentially privacy with youth. Finally, if an organization wants to implement a plan to manage the risk of sexual abuse, where should they begin? And what are some great resources to use? Well, first, I think the best place to start is to gather everything you have in writing, whether that's your hiring practices, your policy manuals, your training curricula, and see what you have in place and what you don't have in place. And so when you're looking at that in front of you, you know, that will really help you see, okay, do we have policies on how we interact with the youth in our programs? Yes or no? Or if we do have some, is that enough? Is this really providing our staff and our volunteers with an idea of how we want them to interact with our youth? And then also another great way to, to start this process is to go and talk to staff. Hey, what's appropriate physical affection? Or is it okay to go on Facebook with youth in our program and, and hear from them what they interpret your policies to say. Um, you also can do that, you know, with your hiring practices. See what's in writing and then go talk to HR. Go talk to those who are involved in your hiring process and ask them what they're actually doing. Um, training curricula, same thing. Monitoring and supervision, looking at what are our supervision protocols, you know, what are our ratios? Are we following those ratios? How do we monitor these high-risk activities within our programs, our overnight activities, our off-site activities? And, you know, as you go through this process, there are a lot of things you can do yourself, but you'll probably get to a point when you realize, you know what, we, we might need some extra help. We might need to turn to the experts. And so it might make sense to have someone come in and provide a training to your staff, whether that's an in-person training or you can do online training um, to really make sure that everyone understands, you know, what the risk is pertaining to sexual abuse uh, 
and youth serving in programs and what their role is in preventing it from happening within your organization. And, you know, you could also have outside experts help you with policies. You can also turn to, you know, other organizations in your community and ask them what they're using. Um, you know, really there's so many things you can do just to look and see what's out there. Um, but you're, you might get to a point where you realize, okay, we now have a, an idea of what we do and don't have, um, and that'll help you guide your next step, which is, okay, let's get something in place, whether that's policies, whether that's our hiring procedures, whether that's a, a training program. Um, let's start moving in a way that's going to make sense within our culture and within our programs. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Angelique and Danica. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have a wonderful day.